It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning. But the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into badness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So here we're going to step out of the book in Acts, of, of Acts. And we're going to instead approach this text. You see in Ecclesiastes 7... Uh, this, is, this is actually marking a turning point in the book that Solomon has been penning. We've been studying this for a couple of weeks now in youth. I will not say how many, but we have been studying this for quite some time at this point. And at this point in the book, Solomon has made a number of incredible statements as he has worked to churn the hearts of his readers to lose hope in this world and to place it firmly where it belongs in the sovereign Lord. The sovereignty of God and the emptiness of this world has, uh, has, without the Lord in fact, without the Lord giving it meaning and purpose, are key themes of this book through and through. But in chapter 7, Solomon takes some time to in fact walk through some very important applications of the fact that God is indeed sovereign. Solomon concludes at the end of chapter 6, with a poetic statement of the foolishness of wrestling against a sovereign God. And he asks the question, who can tell man what is good for him as he lives this short life that is fleeting swiftly away? He asks the question, where can man find what it looks like to live wisely before a sovereign God? What is man to do with this so-called responsibility before God. And he begins to provide some points of application for those who wish to know how does this life have in it a design that we as responsible humans are called to walk in. And so it seemed only fitting that as we've just been recently reminded of the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man that we ought to spend some time walking through what it looks like to live faithfully before God. Under his sovereign hand. Now, one thing that you'll notice with this text is that it's actually filled with Proverbs. Ecclesiastes has taken a brief break from woeing the misery of this life to instead provide Proverbs for us to glean wisdom from. Now, a proverb, I might note, is not a promise or an absolute truth. Praise the Lord if you've read some of the Proverbs. A proverb is a wise saying that is often true, which is meant to teach something to help the hearer to change their life or their thinking. It is indeed not a promise. Often proverbs are used to show comparisons between two things, and this makes it very practical for daily life, for considering what is wisdom in this world. Now, in these so 11 proverbs or so, uh, they will work primarily together to form two points. And so, for your benefit, I've actually written down the two points that all of these proverbs, roughly 11, depends on how you divide it, are working toward. Number one, the point of these proverbs is to show us a life 
of wisdom is a life lived with eternity in view. A life of wisdom under a sovereign God is a life lived with eternity in view. We're going to see this in the Proverbs found in verses 1 through 4. Number two, a life of wisdom is a life lived in content submission to God's sovereign will. The Proverbs that we will see this are found in verses 5 through 14. Now, for those of you on the live stream, I believe you'll have those points put before you. Oh, you do too, look at that. But those of you also who are, who are going to be following along, if you'd like some of these sub-points that are going to be making uh, these two points known, those will be found on, I believe, the YouTube video of, or YouTube audio of this sermon. So if you would like those 11 sub-points that we will be walking through, yes, I only have 11, you're welcome. If you would like to, to have access to those 11 sub-points, they will be accessible on the YouTube audio of this time. So let's then turn our attention to verse 1 as we have a long journey ahead of us. We see in verse 1, proverb number 1. It says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. Now this proverb points toward the centrality of living life with an eternal focus. A good name here is not suggesting that we ought to be well thought of in the godless world. Though we see that this is clearly a virtuous pursuit elsewhere in scripture. When you read 1 Timothy 3.7 for instance. But this is not Sol Solomon's particular meaning. Such a point in, that, in fact would go against some of the, the points that he's just made about the foolishness of attempting to leave a legacy. Or being well thought of and remembered of by mankind. As if those have any value in of themselves, he says, in fact, without the Lord God, they are utter vanity. Now, what he does mean. A name in scripture is often used as more than just something that someone would call you. God speaks in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, of the Israelites being called by his name. This is actually intrinsically putting their name with defining a reality of their identity. That they belong to him. Even we see in the title of Christian. Giving, given to those who were first called Christians in Acts 11.26. That this name was given to identify them according to whom they belong. And to whom they live for. So this understanding of a name is, is in fact beyond just being well thought of by the world. Rather here Solomon says that having a name founded and belonging to God, the one highest and only good name is better than any worldly wealth or comfort. A precious ointment at this time was in fact the height of luxury. The extreme, they were extremely expensive, they were rare, and they were used by ultimately the top of society. Kings bore the anointments of oil and ointments. Often they were used to make an ill-smelling world smell enticing through their glorious aromas. Often they were used, in fact, for medical reasons, to give medicinal properties to the sick, or to provide comfort through illness. So not only would these ointments be utilized to show some form of pomp or wealth, but in fact they could be used to extend life, or possibly show a healthier life. And here to Solomon. He draws comparison. He says that being known by God and being known by his name is far greater than any comfort, honor, and health on this earth. Why is this? He says it right here. Because the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, both of these are in fact joyful occasions, are they not? The day of the birth of a child is indeed a glorious day. But also, the day of the death of a believer is indeed a joyful day. One is clearly better than the other, in fact. Our day of birth, according to Matthew Henry, may have clogged our souls with the burden of the flesh, but the day of our death will set them at liberty from that burden. You see, this flips our wisdom. 
on its head. As we often think of our greatest enemy of man is, is that impending doom, that coming death. Yet Solomon has claimed just one chapter prior in chapter 6, verse 6, that a man, should he live as if to have no death, living nearly an endless life, but living a life without God, he is in fact in a torturous state, not a blessed one. Do you wish to be wise and responsible before the sovereign God? Point number one that Solomon gets at is that it is good for man that, she sh- that he should have his perspective set to eternity as he lives his days, longing more to be known by God than any earthly comfort. It should be such that one looks more forward to his dying day than his birthday. I don't know about you, but this is one that I have not yet gone close to perfecting. Let's look into proverb number two, found in verse two. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So if it is so that man ought to believe that the day of death be better than his day of birth, then there are some implications, aren't there? Both feasting and mourning are in fact commanded by God in the scriptures. Therefore, both have their good and proper place. In fact, our our Savior both feasted at the wedding of his friend in Cana and wept at the grave of his friend in Bethany. And we may possibly glorify God and do rightly in both places, feasting and mourning. Consider, though, which one may tend to put our hope and our joy in the present condition rather than hope in the presence of our coming Christ? What might tempt my heart to disagree disagree with the cry of John as he prayed, Oh, come, Lord Jesus. What may tempt my heart to say, sure, come Jesus, but not until. By Solomon's logic, it's better to go to a place where there is mourning than celebration. Why? Because mourning is an admittance of the brokenness of this world. And a turning to hope in something other than the present circumstances. What is a place of laughter and celebration? Also a good gift. It is a time of temporarily ignoring or setting aside the bleak brokenness of this world to be thankful for the many good gifts the Lord has given. Both are indeed good, but here Solomon does not say that it is sweeter or more elating to go to the house of mourning. Simply that it is better. Why? Why is it better, he says here in the text? Because of the lesson that one learns This is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. You see, standing beside the precipice of eternity teaches a valuable lesson on the brevity and purposefulness of this life. I read once of a group of monks hidden away in the mountains of Tibet that when they would perform a funeral for one of their fellow monks, they would bury him in the graveyard and immediately they would dig another grave beside the freshly filled mound. There would at times, then at all times, pardon, be an open grave in this monastery's graveyard. The understanding was that as they gazed at the mound of the dirt covering their friend, they would remember that the next time they gather to this place, it would be one of them that would lie down beside him. Bleak as you may find such a practice, I have a feeling they understood something that we may not. Possibly something that those of us living in a culture that calls being unhappy an oddity or an illness, something that we may seem to often forget. That this life will indeed end. As Happy as it can be, it will not last the looming night. Thus, those who wish to live wisely in this life, with eternity in view, they will treasure spending time lovingly mourning with others rather than milling their days about jumping from one form of distraction to another. Rather, Ponder the lessons of those amongst us who currently weep more than sing. Do you wish 
to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God. Solomon says, mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep, for they have much wisdom as to the importance of eternity in this short mist of a life. By setting the mind to eternity, one may live wisely, lay continually the lesson of our own mortality upon our hearts, and learn, says he. Look then to proverb number three, found indeed in verse number three. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. What does this mean? Well, Solomon continues his comparisons. Here he says that sorrow is better than laughter. Once again, both are possibly commanded, permitted, and described in Scripture. The Israelites even fall under God's rebuke in Deuteronomy 28, 46-47. Why? For they are refusing to live joyfully before Him, as He has given them so many blessings. But here Solomon says that one is better than the other. Someone who walks about on a vacation, on a private island in the bright sun's rays, will not have a care about them. But how often might they forget that clouds filled with rain may form overhead at any moment. When we look at life and believe that a healthy life is a life filled with happiness and ease, then anything that goes against our happiness and ease will appear unnatural and wrong. Solomon's point here is that life is not intrinsically meant to make man happy. Rather, It's through brokenheartedness at the fallen nature of this world that one can truly enjoy any glimpse of sunshine. It is the sight of sorrow that brings true understanding and allows our hearts to bless God for his good gifts. How is it that Christ reveals the magnificence of his own love? It's through the backdrop of our own deserving found in Romans chapter 5 verse 8. It is only through understanding what we deserve that we see the beauty of God's grace. Only through tears over sin do we see His grace is not an expected payment of a loving God to a lovely person. So also, then it is in sorrow that we recognize God gives us good things as He leads us through a wilderness, not a paradise. Only sorrow in a fallen, sin-ravished world is normal. Those who find total happiness in this life, they are truly disordered. For they do not live by the order that God has said exists. Those who weep, says Solomon, will understand the beauty of having tears dried. Those whose knees are skinned by life will know the powerful arms of a loving father's embrace. Laughter is a good gift, but oh, so much more ought we sorrow. For it is those who mourn that will be comforted according to Matthew 5, 4. Point number three. Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Well, Solomon says, look about you at the world. See the sorrows that fill the earth. They are what we ought to expect as natural, typical. Then he says, take heart at the joyful thought that this world is not where man's final inheritance resides. You see, Solomon points again to a wise life lived as one being set with eternity in mind. Look to proverb number four, found in verse number four. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fool is in the house of mirth. Well, the youth asked what that meant, so I'm going to assume someone else in here might not know what mirth is. Here's what mirth is. It's simply entertainment or amusement. One description is it's a type of blindness that comes from laughing so hard that one's eyes can't open because of tears of laughter. Mirth. Here Solomon gives a proverb describing two houses that have been built. One of mourning and one of mirth. He says the heart of the wise lives not in the house of mirth. Now let me be clear, okay? The heart of the wise will indeed be blessed according to Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We will get to that within a few weeks. And that blessedness does in fact mean a happy or utterly, utterly satisfied way of life. But there is no exhaling without inhaling 
So there is no true godly wisdom without the continual mourning over the brokenness of this life. A life of wise happiness is one filled with mourning. The heart of the fool seeks to breathe in and never breathe out. They wish to be filled up while never poured out or spilled. They want happiness and laughter only. We wish to be distracted from sadness, amused at all times, and want only encouragement. A man of wisdom, though, will see the beauty in mourning over the sin of this world. For it will bring the joy of the one who promises that this is not the end, nor is this our home. Where does the fool's heart live? Well, in the playhouses and pleasure houses of God's good gifts that have been turned into gods. It's said that cats have nine lives. But did you know that all can be spent at once by simply dangling a simple ball of yarn before the edge of a cliff? A cat will give its life to bat at a string that will simply wisp aside and allow it to plummet to its demise. So it is with those of us who live our lives chasing about amusement down every alley that we can find acceptable. We bat about at pretty things, not realizing that it is the enemy who dangles us bright colored string over an endless chasm. We will dance and play ourselves off in the whole way to the grave without taking a moment to look about and ponder why it is that we believe something is wrong if we are not constantly entertained. Point number four. Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says, look where your heart dwells. Only with the mind set on eternity will the house of mourning sound as a beautiful song to the ears of a sinful man. A fool will indeed pay a visit to the house of sadness, but he dwells in the house of live, laugh, love. The wise will throw their heads back and laugh. Their bellies will ache from laughter. Have children. It's inevitable. They will treasure the sweet gifts of God more deeply and more intimately than any others, but they do so as one visiting a neighbor's home, always remembering not to overstay their welcome, as found in Proverbs 25, 17. Solomon at this point then turns in the text a bit, and, and, and not changing theme, but indeed being more specific. Now, furthermore, he presses that a life of wisdom is a life lived in content submission to God's sovereign will. Look then at Proverb number 5, found in verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. Well, the song of fools sounds pretty good. It sounds quite catchy, like it could be stuck in my mind. And this, actually, if you're paying attention, sounds quite like Proverbs 27, 6, doesn't it? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse or deceitfully excessive are the kisses of an enemy. Remember, Solomon is telling us what is good for a man as he lives under this sovereignly ruled world. We're told that God here disciplines those he loves and that those that he does not discipline are not truly his children. In Proverbs 3.12, Hebrews 12, 4-11. This means that God assumes that we're actually not all naturally that great. Rather, there's some things that need to be worked on. Now, we'll happily jump on board with the claim that no one is perfect, but don't you dare be the one to tell us we're not. But the reality is that we're not that good on our own, according to Romans 3.12. The reality is that we have a big problem as sinners standing before a perfect God, according to Romans 6, 23. So Solomon says, while the compliments of people feel good, he calls it the song of fools. While a blogger and a therapist telling us that we need to love ourselves sounds so right and elating. There is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. The crackling of thorns here. What does that mean? The crackling of thorns is a, remor a remark on the worthlessness of the praises of man, the joy and laughter and compliments of those who are simply trying to dance their way through life. 
Solomon is given an example of, of a thorn bush that may be used to start a fire or cook some food. This bush is filled with thorns that would give loud pops and cracks as it burns. Thus, allowing the person who is cooking food to believe that the fire burns hot. When in fact, the thorns burn so quickly and they produce very little heat. Thus, they're in fact worthless to cook anything, but quite deceitful, sounding like they'll get the job done while leaving all that is in the pot raw. What is good for man to live wisely in this world? To hear wise and loving rebukes. Now, not, not that this is all we need to hear. Read 1 Thessalonians 5.14. This is not a call for rebuke all the time and in every situation. Rather, this is a proverb that compares two things to show the importance of one over the other. Point number five, here Solomon says, Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Then you ought to have ears more quickened, readily to the corrections of my own failures, that I might grow and change, rather than living for the drunken praise songs of those who believe that ignorance is bliss. Here I am called to content my heart under God's description of what I need. Look to proverb number six, in, found in verse seven. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Solomon is a wise man, and he has used his entire life in this book that we've seen, pursuing every kind of self-love, and has done so by the use of God's people. He personally knows that oppression touches each person's life to a degree. That every man, woman, or child is either one under the authority and power of another. Thus, open to being oppressed. And when one might be oppressed, they might be driven to ungodly thinking about their oppressor. Solomon would call such ungodly thinking about an oppressor here as madness. Thinking not in a line with truth and reality. For it is the Lord that defines truth and reality. Thinking not in regard to the fact that God will call all oppressors to account, but rather they may begin to think with only the present uncomfortable circumstances in mind. Or, possibly, every man or woman may become one with power and thus be tempted to use it to oppress others. No longer living wisely before God, but as a madman, out of line with his call for them not to use others for their own gain. In this warning, I can't help but think, if only there was a man who could rule over all things, not seeking to use his power as something to be grasped for his own self. And we've been told of him intimately in Philippians 2, 3-11. Here Solomon gives a helpful proverbial warning. He warns those who would wish to be wise of the curse that God has put upon sin. Though sin will promise delicacies yet not tasted, it will only pay out poison and death. Oh, a bribe will sound good to one in authority, but he will find himself as a hard-hearted madman, using others for his own gain. Where is our mindset? Is it set to content ourselves by living by God's word or will we rise up along with Eve and Adam and seek our own self-love and interest? When a wise man goes away from following the Lord's path, he will find himself oppressing the image of, images of God that he has been charged to protect. Jonah himself was driven to madness and proclaimed God to be evil because he could not content his heart with God's love of those wicked Ninevites. Point number six, 
Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says, I ought to be on guard against my own madness, my ungodly thinking, and the corruption of my heart, rather than long most highly to be out from underneath oppression, or long for something else so highly that I would oppress others. I am to content my heart with God's will for my life. Look to Proverb number 7. Found in verse 8. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. This is one of those proofs that a proverb is not a promise. As we often see throughout scripture that the end of something may in fact be far worse than the beginning. Read 2 Peter 2.20. Matthew 12.45. But nonetheless we see that this principle often holds true. For as we see in the example of the last verse here that he just gave, in the beginning it may seem as an oppressor has the upper hand, yet we know that all things will one day face the Lord in an account. The trials of this life may in fact be terrible in the beginning, but we are called to hope that they may bring about deep blessing in the end. Read the story of Joseph. Here Solomon reminds us that in the end, all things will be made straight. All ill-fitting reality will be made new. All evil will come to an end. Every wickedness will perish with the final enemy to die being death itself. Here Solomon reminds the oppressed, the tired, the hurting, and the humiliated to wait patiently under affliction, for this is a world under a sovereign God. Solomon has made many proclamations of God's sovereignty up to this point, and he carries on this trend as he moves towards verses 13 and 14, which will be the pinnacle of his proclamations of wise living. This sovereign God is a good God. Always he is unchanging in his goodness. You are good and you do good. Thus the most wicked deed carried out under his will and providence is still perfectly in alignment with and directed by his unending will of love. Which we see Paul give expression to in Romans 8, 28 through 30. He reminds us that those who are humbled under the sovereign trials of this life will be far more satisfied in the endurance of them than those who out of pride believe themselves to be unworthy of difficulty, oppression, and trials. Take joy, my brothers. Point number seven. Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says, hold fast through oppression and wickedness. Keep your eyes set to the sun that makes all silver linings shine. Your long suffering in this fallen world is never wasted. Even it promises to, by God's sovereign hand, bring about good for those who love him. Proverb number eight. He carries on. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. This is a simple one, needing very minimal explanation. Solomon here addresses another temptation that may be yielded to during times of oppression and injustice. He addresses man's proclivity to anger. Anger says, I deserve better than this. When truly all I deserve has been made clear in Romans 3.23. Our wages, what we deserve or what we have earned, has only ever been eternal death. Anything other than hell is the grace of God. For that's what we have all earned by our own strength, even our good deeds, according to Isaiah 6 through 4, 6. Do you wish to be wise in this life? Then you must know the anger of man does not produce the righteous ends that God has called for. My anger will never make another person more holy, nor will my anger welcome sinners into his kingdom. Whenever I find anger in my heart, that I have angered myself toward another, this I may know for a fact, 
that the anger lodges, dwells, resides, abides in the heart of the fool. Anger is a sin so common to man that indeed it will be a visitor in the heart of the wise. But it beds down in the heart of fools. It moves into the heart of one not thinking from God's perspective. There it will find rest. There it remains in the heart, held on to, clung to and hugged as a comfort and friend that is not easily parted with. And so along with Paul in Ephesians 4.26, Solomon warns, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Meaning, give no rest to anger in your heart. Don't allow it to stay any longer than it takes to realize that it is there. Let not time pass, nor the sun descend with anger dwelling within. I must make it as a money changer in God's temple. And I must leave no table unturned to rid my heart of its every presence, for this is my Father's house. Point number eight. Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says, guard your heart from anger, for it rests in the heart of fools. God is the one over all my circumstances, and therefore it is against God that my anger will always ultimately be directed. He is over every crook crook in my lot, every governmental oppression, every detail of this life. Therefore, a life of wisdom is to content my heart at his sovereign hand, And bid my anger to flight. Proverb number 9. Found in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom, wisdom that you ask this. Solomon says plainly, do you want to be wise? Okay, then stop wishing for the golden days. Well, back in my day is the breath of fools, not the wise. To long for the days that were is to say that God is able to do more at that time than he is now. It's to disagree with God's allowance of time to pass. Those who look back on days as if the ones in the past were better have most likely forgotten the reality of those better days. And more importantly, they're not looking right here to be sustained by the very word of God in their days. Thomas Scott addresses this passage by saying that those who speak as though there was once a golden age, longing for the days passed by, are those who have forgotten that the earth was always filled, just as it is today, with as much sin and misery as it is now. He goes on to say, We know the evil of former times only by report, but we feel present inconveniences and distresses, and therefore are prone to think former times were better to live in than the present. Solomon says, look instead for the here and now and what you're called to do is to live faithfully where the Lord has placed you. God has always been good. Man has always been wicked. There is nothing new under the sun. Those days are no better than these days. So I must work and beg for a heart that may be better to encounter whatever it is that the Lord wills for me. It's said well by one pastor. This is a foolish reflection upon the providence of God and the government of the world. It is folly to complain of the badness of our own times when we have more reason to complain of the badness of our own hearts. If man's hearts were not evil, the times would mend. We have no more reason to be thankful, far more reason, pardon, to be thankful that the times aren't worse, but that even in the worst of times, we enjoy many years. Point number nine, do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says to fix your heart on faithfulness to this sovereign Lord today, knowing that in some seasons he will bring rain upon my life when he deems it wise to nourish my heart with weeping. And at times he will bring sunshine to my days that I might be like a branch of a vine spreading my arms toward the sun, pointing all who would see me to the giver of all good things. Content my heart this day to his will. Proverb number 10, found in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
this is an extremely difficult text to translate in the original. Uh, thus, it's quite hard to say for certain its meaning, to be honest, from my perspective. Many commentators take very different approaches, and even the wisest theologians say very little on this text, typically. Thus, I will attempt to say little in hopes of being wiser in years to come and better understanding Solomon's point here. I'll say only that which we know for certain. The word protection here literally means shadow. Sometimes this word is used to show protection. For example, when we're told to hide under the shadow of God's wings in Psalm 17, 8. Yet sometimes this word is used to show that there is an illusion of protection without really being protected. Like in Psalm 103, 11 and 144, 4. An example may be the love that the wicked have of nighttime. They sneak about in the night believing their shadows protect them. They hide their wickedness from God's eyes. Yet they provide no true cover. For all things are laid bare and plainly before him. The shadows offer no real protection. It seems as though Solomon is saying that there can be a legit benefit, a legitimate benefit to this having wisdom in this world. It's as legitimate as having money can be a benefit in this world. Yet he recognizes that, that this is not a benefit that is eternal nor permanent. For ultimately, all of the wisdom of the world, which Solomon had at the time, by the way, if it is all that someone has to hope in, with no eternity to hope for, then even all the wisdom in the world ultimately comes to nothing. So what does he say in point number 10? Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says that wisdom is worth pursuing, for it will yield advantage in this life and to the next. But do not miss God himself by seeking only his wisdom and not him. Proverb number 11. Found in verse 13 and 14. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Here is Solomon's final call. This this is... His summary proverb. The, the one that answers the question, what is good for a man in this life? Here is Solomon's pinnacle point. How can a man be wise in this world that God is sovereign over? What does it look like to be responsible before a sovereign God? Consider, he says. Consider, ponder deeply, guard your mind with the meditation of this thought. Who can make straight? What he has made crooked. This is an incredible statement of God's absolute, total and utter sovereignty. Solomon seeks to encourage his young listeners that should they want to understand God's wisdom in this world, they must understand this is God's world. In a book written on verse 13 called The Crook in the Lot, Thomas Boston says, As to the crook in your lot, God has made it. And it must continue while he will have it so. Should you ply your utmost force to even it or make it straight, your attempt will be in vain. It will not change for all you can do. Only who, he who made it can mend it or make it straight. In essence, Solomon says, forget not who the ruler of this vain life is. Forget not the goodness of God when you're in the throes of suffering or trials. He is no less in control than at any other moment in time. Who is it that creates the day of rain? Who is it that creates the day of sunshine? Who is it that hurls the tornado and spans the rainbow in the clouds? They are one in the same. We live under the sun, but our God dwells beyond the sun as its sustainer. He is the one to be trusted. He is the one to be run to. He is the one who creates this world even as we Ruin it with sin. Yet even this has not been out of his will and plan since before the foundations of the earth. As Christ was always plan A. According to Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. We are lowly man with lowly mind and humble power. 
what ought to be the wisest way for a man to live under the sovereignty of God? Remember that God is God and that I am not. Again, I'll quote Thomas Scott. He says, man's wisdom consists, is found in, in observing God's unalterable appointments and suiting himself to them. Do you want to be wise? Understand God's sovereignty and bend your will to live in it. Solomon wants his readers to know that it is God who has allowed all time to to pass. There's nothing outside of God's sovereign grasp. It is he in whom we all live and move and have our being. It is he that by his will we live and do this or that, according to James 4.15. It is he who is sovereign and ruling over all the authorities and governments of this world, according to Romans 13.1. It is he that has numbered the hairs of your head and in and whose hand will not be stayed. Rather, he does any and all that he ever should will or please. It is the one who trusts in the Lord that will see blessing and difficulty both as equally love given from the hands of a loving father in a fallen world. My day of adversity, yes, the evil that befalls me is not from the hand of anyone except my father who is sovereign. It is he who gave all of these, the pit, the prison, and the palace, to Joseph, the son of Jacob. It was from the Father's hand that our Christ drank the cup that dark night in the shadows of the garden. Yet take hope, for look to whom he has given all authority under heaven and over earth. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Oh, think of the many now before the throne who are blessing God for all eternity for that wise providential dealing which under divine grace prepared for them a home and brought them to it with everlasting joy. No providence is questioned by his throne. It's rejoiced. It is in a Savior's hand that sovereignty is wielded. This is point 11, found in Proverb number 11. Do you wish to be wise and responsible before a sovereign God? Solomon says, oh, know this. Know that it is God who is sovereign. Thus in the day of prosperity, when all the day is shining sun and gentle breeze, then rejoice, rejoice in the good Father who gives good gifts. But when your lot is crooked, when you're intimately familiar with the fallen world around you, whether it is by your sin or the sin of another, consider the gift God intends this crook to be in preparing your heart for eternity. Consider the gift God intended for Paul when he proclaimed in Acts 9, 16, I will show him how much he suffers for my name. This Father, this Creator, the one whom we can know with absolute certainty, He is good, grants the day of adversity. For those of you not in Christ, this is your call. That here in the day of adversity, you can come the closest possible to seeing your desperate need for this all-sovereign Lord. Do not let another day pass without turning to Him. Flee to the one who, was born, who has borne in mercy with you all this long while. And cling to the one who can turn your sorrow to rejoicing, your weeping to comfort. To you who are in Christ, would you see what wisdom is? Would you see our need for more of it? Would you renew your mind with what it looks like to live live, wisely before our God? Would you turn in thanksgiving to this Christ who lived perfectly in wisdom in this world of the sovereign Lord doing what we could not do for the wisdom he describes here is not describing me 
It describes the one who lived perfectly that the fool like me might be made his own. Thus, I will seek to live as he says is wisest because it is he that says it. I will follow the commands he says are good because it is he who commands them. I will trust in terrible circumstances and sufferings because it is he who has written my days. He is sovereign. He is good. He is unchanging. He is wisdom. So I am to content my heart with his sovereign hand. The heart of one living wisely under a sovereign God is one that God has brought to the point where he might sing this hymn. Such as Horatius Bonner's, Thy way, not mine, O Lord. Thy way, not mine, O Lord. However dark it be, lead me by thine own hand. Choose out the path for me. I dare not choose my lot. I would not if I might. Choose thou for me, my God. So shall I walk. Right. Let us pray. Father God, we stand before your word, not with all answers, nor with all wisdom. But Lord, we stand before your word, having Christ come and become wisdom for us. Lord, as Christ understood, all of Scripture spoke of him. Would you let us treasure the beauty of wisdom that we see here found in Christ and Christ alone? Lord, would we see as you have called us to be conformed to his image? Would you, would you show to us the beauty found in living wisely before your sovereign hand? Lord, with those who find a crook in their lot, would you cherish in their hearts the beautiful gift that you say trials and tribulations guaranteed are for you. Lord, for those in the day of prosperity, oh, would they rejoice. Would they bed their hearts in your goodness and prepare that when the day turns, when the clouds arrive, you are no less good and no less sovereign in the day of adversity or the day of prosperity. Would you bind our hearts to you, Lord? Would you make our heart cry, thy will be done? We pray these things in Jesus' name.